0: Michael Tubbs grew up poor, and when he was elected mayor, he decided to do something about poverty. He was just 26, the youngest mayor of any major city in the United States, and what he did in his hometown of Stockton, California, no American mayor had done before. He started giving poor people cash, no strings attached.
1: I'm a data guy, so once someone says, this is what solves this problem, it's like, okay, well, let's let's try to implement said solution, regardless of the politics. We'll make the politics work.
0: Stockton's pilot program in guaranteed basic income proved an amazing success. Opponents called it an invitation to fraud and corruption. But it started lifting people out of poverty. They found better jobs, parents got more time with their kids, and it was actually cost-effective. Many other mayors and presidential candidates too were inspired to take up Stockton's approach, which begs the question, could guaranteed basic income programs radically reduce poverty and in so doing, boost the quality of life for all Americans? I'm Bridget Schulte and this is Better Life Lab. Stay with us. I'm Bridget Schulte. You're listening to Better Life Lab. Guaranteed Basic Income has attracted many fans in recent years, like Dorian Warren, co president of Community Change, who was my guest last episode. And in 2020, Guaranteed Basic Income featured in the presidential campaigns of candidates including Andrew Yang and current Vice President Kamala Harris. To find out how guaranteed basic income can really work, though, you need to go to the source, to Stockton, California, and to the people who first showed it could actually succeed in contemporary America. On this episode of Better Life Lab, my guests include two of those people. The first is the visionary former mayor of Stockton, Michael Tubbs.
1: I'm obsessed with ending poverty, and I've always (laughs) been as someone who grew up in poverty. And when I was mm-hmm. mayor, I realized many of the discussions we were having about anything were really conversations about economic insecurity, lack in poverty, mm-hmm. whether it was violence and crime,
2: yeah. whether
1: it was homelessness and housing affordability, whether it was educational attainment. The, the common denominator across all those conversations was that those in poverty were either the most impacted or experienced the most, or it was highly correlated. And I said, we're going to keep banging our head against the wall until we actually solve the root cause of a lot of these dysfunctions which mm-hmm. is poverty. After that, I had my team do some research. and They came back with this idea of a guaranteed income. And I had learned about guaranteed income in studying Dr. King in college and reading where do we go from here, chaos our community, where he called for a, a guaranteed income. Mm-hmm. So I'm a data guy. So once someone says, this is what solves this problem, it's like, okay, well, let's figure out how to implement said solution, regardless of the politics. We'll make the politics work. We'll have to force the politics to get to where, where they need to go. And that's sort of the short story of how the Guaranteed Income Pilot came to be.
0: What did you actually do, and what difference did it make in people's lives? Well, in Stockton,
1: we did the first city-led, like, basic income program ever. There were some programs done by the federal government in the 60s, but since then, no real government play in the Guaranteed Mm -hmm. Income space. So in 2017, in partnership with the Economic Security Project, we launched the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, and we identified mm-hmm. 125 individuals. The main criterion was they had to live in a zip code at or below the city's median mm-hmm. income, um, meaning that some people made more than that and some people made less than that. And some people were, were not, most people were working and some people were not. And they were mm-hmm. given $500 a month for two years, no strings attached.
0: Mm-hmm. And what did you find?
1: We found that, number one, people didn't stop working. In fact, they are more likely to move from part-time jobs to full-time jobs. Mm. um, And two times less likely to be unemployed than those who did not receive the guaranteed income. We saw health impacts, like mental health and and, and health overall improved substantially. um, Comparable to clinical trials of some like depression medicines. We saw that people were better able to parent. We saw that 99% of money was spent on non-drugs and alcohol, Mm. that people were spending it on things that make our economy go, that spending it in local businesses, spending it in helping their neighbors and their family members who also shared economic insecurity.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, you're quoted in an article, and you're talking about cash is a better way to cure some forms of depression and anxiety than Prozac, and that so many of the illnesses we see in our community are the result of toxic stress and elevated cortisol levels and anxiety, directly attributed to income volatility and not having enough to cover your basic necessities.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And as, as your listeners know, and as I'm, you, you know, your work really talks about the ways in which work isn't enough for a lot of people, dare I say, most people, to pay for basics, to pay their mm-hmm. rent. In fact, we know that's true because in 99% of counties in this country, a minimum wage job is not enough to pay for rent for a one bedroom apartment. Right. So we know, and we also know that that creates stress when folks are thinking about how to rob Peter and pay Paul and how to borrow from this person to pay that person. And then it's cascaded when, a, traumatic event happens, whether it's a global pandemic like COVID-19 or a localized earthquake or Mm -hmm. something as small as your tire going out, something as small as your car being towed because you didn't pay your parking tickets. Like any little thing causes even more stress. And science tells us that has an impact on the brain development of children. In fact, Mm -hmm. living in poverty, being born in poverty is an adverse childhood experience. It's, it's on yeah, the ACEs yeah. scale as something like this is going to have an impact on your adulthood if we don't appropriately intervene. But we also know that in, in adults, it leads to hypertension, high blood pressure. It leads to problems yeah. with sleeping. It leads to heart issues. It leads to many of the core morbidities that are further exacerbated by COVID-19. Which yeah. makes like, those who are the most vulnerable even more vulnerable to diseases right. and pandemics. And not because they're making unhealthy choices, but because they live in poverty. And I just feel like in a civilized society, in a society that has the means to actually solve this problem, it's unacceptable.
0: Yeah, It's interesting you talk about these are not about choices, and yet uh, that's sort of the prevailing narrative in many circles. There's sort of like this moral aspect to it, or that people are choosing not to work, or the argument that you've heard over the years that some uh, lawmakers were even talking about during the pandemic, when so many people were furloughed and out of work, that somehow supporting people will make them lazy, Or they won't want to work. What did you find that would speak to some of those myths and stereotypes?
1: Well, I realized after the Stockton findings, which showed like literally the opposite in real world, is that the issue isn't just data. the, The issue is ideological and narrative. And there's a bipartisan consensus in some cases around like a contempt for poor people. At least some of the Democratic Party has a desire to fight for working people and poor people. But across the board, you hear statements about people don't want to work, you don't want to make people lazy. You have the senator from West Virginia saying Mm -hmm. we don't want an entitlement society. I guess in his ideal society, children should be hungry and Mm -hmm. mothers should be stressed and anxious and people should have no bargaining power in the workplace, and not even have a floor with which they could use to leverage for better worker protections or better wages for themselves and their family. It's Mm -hmm. just completely bizarre. And that's why so much of the work I'm focused on now is how do we change that story? How do we have mass public education about what poverty is, what it looks like, what it's caused by, and that there's actually solutions that solve it that are good for all of us, particularly because before the pandemic, we know one out of every two Americans could not afford a 500-dollar emergency. Like, one out of right. every two Americans or one paycheck, one skip paycheck, one layoff, one life event away from being in poverty.
0: Right, right. We couldn't withstand that kind of disruption. Well, so, you know, let's think about then moving forward into the future and the future of work scenarios where we're talking about increased automation and jobs being destroyed and new jobs being created. And one of the arguments is... You know, if we continue on the trajectory that we've been on for the last 40-some years, where jobs have been destroyed, meaning the good-paying manufacturing jobs, and they've been replaced, but they've been replaced by—excuse my language—increasingly crappy jobs. It's not that the work is crappy, but the job is crappy— poorly paid, no benefits, involuntary part-time, unpredictable schedules um, that ha- that really make it difficult for anyone to live if that is the trajectory, how do we need to deal with it? Well I, I
1: be a little provocative I think for some people who have the means and, and, and resources to help create the future, I think there's a desire for a permanent underclass for a permanent group of folks who, because there's no real safety net, because there's no basic income, because there's nothing, we'll have to choose whatever crappy job technology spits out for them hmm. um, as a means of survival. Not as a means of dignity, because that's inherently undignified, but for, for folks yeah. to survive. So I think that's part of what we're, we're fighting against in this conversation. But I, I think for me, just given just trends, it's like, I don't see how that's going to solve the problem we have now. It's only going to make it worse. Like right now we have folks who are increasingly economically insecure. We have high rates of polarization. We have high rates of economic anxiety. We have society really almost like stretching and pulling and and something has to give. Mm -hmm. And that's with the status quo. And you put in a scenario where massive number of jobs are displaced and and automated. And yes, some new jobs will be created, but some jobs won't. And what are we going to do? Like people are just going to sit home with no money. So will
0: there will there even be a home if you don't have any money, right?
1: So I think it's 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 a it's a very dystopian sort of outlook, and folks are always talking about basic income or guaranteed income as a stopgap for the future. But I'm like, the future's the present's a little dystopian too. So let's get this (laughs) figured out today. So then we're in a better position to make the right policy calls in the future. Because what I'm worried about is that I know in times of crisis, a lot of elected leaders aren't able to think strategically or long term. Mm-hmm. It's just like, all right, what's going to make everyone not hate me anymore? And it's right, like, right. so I would hate to see what decisions come about in the next 10, 15 years if we don't have an income floor to build upon. So we're not starting from scratch. And that's yeah. why I've been so incessant and to some people annoying about ringing the bell, like, this is a problem. We have to solve for this. I think it's tantamount to maintaining our standing as the leader of the free world. I think it's tantamount to our democracy. I mean, we're still using a 1930 safety net, which was brilliant Mm -hmm. and revolutionary in 1930 and still helpful. But you mean to tell me nothing has changed in terms of society since 1930?
0: Right. So... It's interesting you talk about changing the narrative. And one of the things that was really surprising to me as I was preparing for this interview with you, I had no idea... That Richard Nixon was a big supporter of universal or guaranteed basic income, and I had no idea that the federal government actually ran pilots in the late 60s, 8,500 Americans in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Iowa, North Carolina, Indiana, Seattle, and Denver, and that the data showed they were wildly successful. In 1971, in Richard Nixon's State of the Union address, he said he considered his plan for universal basic income to place a floor under the income of every family with children in America, the most important item on his legislative agenda and yet there was a conservative in his white house that didn't like the idea that used an old 150-year-old study that was flawed and based on you know really f- no data faulty data from great britain from the uk and completely not only killed that universal basic income that would have affected everybody we wouldn't be having this conversation we would already have that floor but also really change the whole nature of how we think about poverty and stigmatizing poverty. How do we change that narrative so that this becomes something that we can have conversations about?
1: Well, we know that poverty it's not just experienced by black people or in people of color but it's disproportionately experienced by those groups and that's not by mm-hmm. accident, that's by design. So we know we can have a conversation about, any safety net program in this country without dealing with race. We, like, and, we, and we saw it with the New Deal where so many of the New Deal programs excluded women, Black people, Latinos, Asians, like on, by yeah. design, like to right. get to get them passed, get them through. And we saw the same thing even with like the Affordable Care Act the arguments used against universal health care. So part of the narrative work we have to do is really deal with racism and white supremacy. Poverty is very expensive for all of us because we solve for poverty with hospitals, jails, and mm-hmm. police. And we spend so much money on those functions because we really haven't done the job to think about poverty. So I think a, a narrative bringing up the mm-hmm. history, like the president of the United States, a Republican, was actively trying to figure out how to make this work. That Sarah Palin became popular as governor because she gave people more free money from the Alaska Permanent Dividend Fund. But right now, let's get to the point, like we all have consensus that we want to get this done, that we want some form of a guaranteed income. And, And we've been really close before. And I think our job is to get us back to that place and finally across the finish line.
0: Michael Tubbs. He's the former mayor of Stockton, California. Coming up, more from Mayor Tubbs and from his close collaborator on Stockton's Guaranteed Basic Income Project, Natalie Foster. Stay with us. I'm Bridget Schulte. You're listening to Better Life Lab. We're talking with Michael Tubbs. In 2016, he was elected mayor of Stockton, California at the age of 26. He's known nationally for establishing the first city-led Guaranteed Basic Income program in America. It started a movement, and Guaranteed Basic Income is currently being pursued by dozens of cities and towns across the United States. Now joining us also is Natalie Foster, co-founder of the Economic Security Project. She was the mayor's close collaborator on the Stockton program. I asked her to describe how and why it
3: started. If you rewind five or six years ago, you know, Donald Trump had just been elected. There was a raging future of work debate. Um, Mm -hmm. People were really looking for big ideas. It was clear that 50 years of, you know, Reaganomics or neoliberal capitalism had not worked for most people right? A quarter Mm -hmm. of American families at the time couldn't pull together $400 um, if they tried, right? If somebody got a traffic ticket, they couldn't pull together that cash. And Mm -hmm. a guaranteed income was the kind of big idea that um, could start to really take a bite out of the racial income gap and start to Mm -hmm. smooth incomes, which are increasingly volatile um, in this country. Mm -hmm. But very few people were talking about it. So Economic Security Project launched to help promote the idea and and to ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Um, What did we learn from 40 years of Alaskan residents receiving a dividend with no strings attached? And um, we're realizing some city needed to demonstrate this. And um, as fate would have it, Mayor Michael Tubbs and I started talking about our, our shared Desire to have a city um, lead the way. And um, mm-hmm. we're really pleased to support Mayor Tubbs in launching what would be the first city led guaranteed income demonstration in Stockton, California. Uh, 125 families receiving $500 a month. And, you know, we didn't know then, but it would end up running two years and take us into the pandemic. And there was a lot of media buzz. We started to see presidential candidates pick up the idea and candidates like Mm -hmm. Kamala Harris, now vice president, who had the LIFT Act, which would give $500 a month to families in America who really needed it. Uh, The question for both of you, one of the things that really struck me
0: in looking at the findings, we talk a lot about poverty as an income or, or financial scarcity. And we don't often think about how there's so much time scarcity, that poverty takes a lot of time, public transportation or waiting in uh, long lines, uh, trying to cobble together a side hustle or another job. And it was so interesting to read how people felt they had more time for their families, for their lives, quality of life, you know, And, and yet those are not ever conversations that seem to come as part of the poverty conversation.
1: Yeah, well, what we know for sure is that money is a proxy for time and how you own your time and how you use your time. And what we found over and over in the data is that cash gave people agency, the ability to choose where to spend their time and how to spend their time. And it was really reading those stories that made me understand how so much of what's dehumanizing about economic insecurity and poverty is that you don't own your time, that your time mm-hmm. is someone else's, that you you have to be at the and call when your employer calls you and tells you to come in for an extra two hours or I need you tomorrow for five hours. Mm-hmm. You don't have the ability to plan for a future because you're just thinking about the mm-hmm. next hour, the next day, etc. So I think mm-hmm. when we have this conversation about basic income, it's also a conversation about time. Some people I know who have a lot of money they really own their time. They spend mm. their time how they want to spend it. They spend their time oftentimes doing nothing or, mm. or, or thinking or mm-hmm. going for walks or skiing, right? They, they, but they spend their time in ways where the thinking isn't like, I need time to survive. But that mm. as a human, I get to own my time to have a full human experience.
3: Yeah, wow. I think that's. I just think that's so well said. That time, you know, money is a proxy for time. I mean, so much of the reporting on the early days of Stockton, uh, reporters would say, you know, what? How are people spending their money? Mm-hmm. And you know, we can answer that. People are spending the money on groceries. They're spending the money on back to school goods. They're you know paying utility bills they're covering rent but that's to me the far less interesting question the far more interesting question is what doesn't show up on those receipts or the ledger right it's Time people have back in their lives. Mm Mayor I'll never forget the story I heard Tomas tell, uh, who was a recipient in Stockton, and he was able to stop his third gig. And one Saturday morning, was spending uh, time with his children at the swimming pool, and you know he's sitting in the pool, the sun's out, and he watches and realizes his kids know how to swim, which is something he hadn't known because he'd not had a leisurely Saturday morning with his children in a very long time. Mm -hmm. And it was only when he became a recipient of the guaranteed income demonstration and $500 started coming in a month, he knew he could count on. He knew he had the ability to take off time on a Saturday morning and spend it with his family. And that Mm -hmm. is the type of you know agency and um, life that everyone in the richest nation on earth deserves.
0: Natalie Foster. She's co-chair of the Economic Security Project, a network to catalyze guaranteed basic income programs. We also heard in the conversation from Michael Tubbs, former mayor of Stockton. He recently launched a nonprofit called End Poverty in California, or EPIC. Tubbs is a fellow at the Harvard Institute of Politics and also serves as an economic advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom. Most of the time, when people talk about social policy and programs, we tend to hear from the advocates and the experts. But part of what we do here at the Better Life Lab podcast is to also highlight the voices of people directly affected by those programs and policies. So to get an insider's view of what it's meant to receive guaranteed basic income payments, we'll hear next from John Summers. He lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. For several years, he was the editor-in-chief of a well-regarded national magazine. But in 2016, family circumstances compelled him to leave that job. John is now a single father of two children. From home, he runs a small research institute called Lingua Franca Media. John and his kids are able to live in Cambridge thanks to a local affordable housing program. And he's a participant in Cambridge Rise, a guaranteed basic income pilot program.
2: I tend to apply for everything. So I noticed there was an uh, uh, application for Cambridge Rise. And I, as I filled out the survey, I became curious about the intentions behind the program. Because it was mm-hmm. less interested in financial um, worthiness and more interested in social things. And it was more of a survey about well-being. And mm-hmm. so that intrigued me, and then sometime later, I found out that our family had been selected and...
0: so how How is it that you qualify for a guaranteed basic income program
2: um How far back do you want to go
0: <laughs> as far as uh, as far back as you as you as you'd like
2: well uh, I'm you know a full time single father of a daughter of thirteen and a son who is ten and has seven diagnoses, uh, the most important of which is autism. Mm. So having a son with autism has drastically changed the financial calculus of my life, which is a fancy Mm. way of saying that it's completely impoverished me. Hmm. I left my job to care for my son at the same time as his mother and I split. Mm -hmm. So in the first year after leaving work, my income dropped by more than $100,000. Wow. Was
0: it, was it impossible to combine your work and the level of care that your son needed?
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, was, it, it was not even a question. Just to state the most obvious reference point for parents who are not caring for disabled children, uh, there's no daycare.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I need to be here for him. There's nobody else. You know, it's 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 not impossible to work from home, but it is impossible to work outside the home. So yeah. it needs to happen here. Mm-hmm.
0: So with those kind of a heavy care responsibilities, getting a guaranteed check, so to speak, or guaranteed income every month, what has that meant for you and your family?
2: This might not sound like much, but it's been a pretty big morale booster mm. when you're basically stuck. And the usual mechanisms of the umbrella we call the social safety net either don't work or extract more than they give. Having something outside of that umbrella has meant a lot, actually. Um, We were able Mm -hmm. to, before the rupture in the family, able to purchase a home under the city of Cambridge is affordable housing. In practical real terms, $500 a month, which is what I've been getting from Cambridge Rise, is almost half of my mortgage.
0: You were talking earlier that it's not only about the finances, but that there is a social element to it or well-being. And When we talked the other day, you said to me, it says that there are people out there who care about us.
2: Well, that sounds pretty sentimental now that you read it back to me. Um, but, uh,
0: <laughs> I actually thought it was lovely.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not saying it's not, but um, in the last two years of this pandemic, that proposition that there are people out there who care for strangers has been pretty sorely tested in lots mm-hmm. of ways. It's been pretty dispiriting, in, in my opinion. But um, so, counteracting that, the Universal basic income, it it sort of breaks that relationship between personal worth and economic standing in the community. Mm -hmm. The mantra of the so-called American dream is you get what you deserve and you deserve what you get. Um, So universal basic income doesn't imply anything about our family's individual personal value in society. And it doesn't put a price for any specific activity that I'm carrying out. I'm using it for Help with caring for my children, Uh, Mm -hmm. but it's not required. Uh, You can use it for what you want to use it for. You don't have Mm -hmm. to submit receipts and then you know bargain with the payment mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing gives
0: you. It does it give you more of a sense of dignity? Does this feel different? Sort of a more human.
2: It doesn't feel more human, and it doesn't feel that it comes with. Uh, a kind of endorsement of dignity, I think it's neutral about Mm. all those questions. And Mm. I think what it does then, it leaves you freed up to find your dignity in a sphere other than your income. (laughs) You know, money from, you know, welfare or food stamps or SSI, which I have received money from all these programs, there are requirements. You know, there is a kind of social Mm -hmm. control aspects. But universal basic income is the only program we have that imposes no hidden values or attempts to manipulate us into any particular kind of social values, I would say. And that's important. The money is detached from any kind of social control.
0: You know, in the national conversation, politicians who tend to be opposed to this— You know, they talk about fraud and how people will use it. And the research shows that that families are really using it in the way that you are, to pay bills, pay mortgage, to invest more in their children. What do you think that says about this larger conversation?
2: I think it says that people need the money. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's pretty, and they need it pretty badly. But it doesn't require you to take care of a disabled son like I am. Right, right. But I would just hold out the idea that the neutrality and the freedom are goods in themselves for this program. Because Mm. um, then it's less an instrument of social policy, which, let's face it, not everyone is going to universally agree on.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking about the national conversation. I think the stereotype, the assumption is that, you know, these basic income programs, you know, are for people who may not have education or who may not have had some of the advantages that you've had in your life.
2: Yes, uh, well... uh, there's no surer way to poverty in America than taking out student loans and going to study for a PhD in history. That's a, it's not the fastest way to poverty, but it's the most certain way uh, if uh, you don't you know, have other means. Like many people who go to college, I was the first in my family to go to college. I grew up in a small town, and then to everyone's surprise, not least mine, I kept going. Uh, mm-hmm. And I received a PhD in history from the University of Rochester, New York, and got a job as a part-time lecturer at Harvard. And I moved to Massachusetts in, uh, well, it's now it's 20 years ago.
0: Circling back to universal basic income or guaranteed income, as you kind of think out to kind of what might be happening 5, 10, 15 years down the line, what role do you think guaranteed income could or should play in in how we think about the future?
2: It's a hard question uh, because the way I see it is in terms of a kind of hedge, lifeline, uh, you know, a kind of uh, assurance, not insurance, Mm -hmm. I think, but assurance, you know, against whiplash, which Mm. is what I've experienced in lots of different ways, where you expect one thing to happen and then the opposite happens to your disadvantage Mm. economically. We used to have the stratum of uh, middle-class professionals And this notion of a career, Mm -hmm. which sounds antiquated at this point to me. I mean, with career, you have uh, the idea of predictability, some ability to plan. As a career professional, you can expect certain rewards to follow. Um, Mm -hmm. And the guaranteed part about guaranteed income is the most important part, really, (laughs) because it, it does enable you to plan and it enables you to conceive of a future.
0: John Summers. He's a full-time father of two kids in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's also founder and president of Lingua Franca Media and a recipient of guaranteed basic income through a pilot program called Cambridge Rise. Earlier this episode, we heard from Natalie Foster, co-founder of the Economic Security Project, and from Michael Tubbs, the former mayor of Stockton, California. He worked closely with Foster to pilot a guaranteed basic income program that's become a model for dozens of other cities around the country. Tubbs lost his re election bid in 2020. Since then, he's published a memoir, The Deeper the Roots. And Tubbs recently founded a nonprofit called End Poverty in California, or EPIC. This season on Better Life Lab, we're looking at work stress and the future of work and well being in America. Next time, We'll take a closer look at a future of work that may have less work and more unemployment.
1: In my industry at Zahia, obviously, there were no jobs and travel. Being at home, when I was on the unemployment, I was able to participate and do more of the stuff that I wanted to do as a parent, as a dad.
0: We've got work to do. I hope you'll join us next time on Better Life Lab. For more resources on fairer, healthier work, go to newamerica.org. Click the link for Better Life Lab. On behalf of myself and my producer, David Schulman, many thanks for joining us for our new season. Please review us on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. Better Life Lab is produced by New America in partnership with Slate. Special thanks to Alicia Montgomery at Slate for all her work with us. Our podcast is sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is committed to improving health and health equity in the United States. In partnership with others, RWJF is working to develop a culture of health rooted in equity that provides every individual with a fair and just opportunity to thrive, no matter who they are, where they live, or how much money they have. For more information, visit www.rwjf.org. For Better Life Lab, I'm Bridget Schulte.